Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelensinti, Tabisoluhuko, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, the death toll in the Nigerian building collapse has risen to 84. Experts say South Africans may not have enough revenue collection for 2015-2016 financial years and foreign nationals trading in South Africa call on government to protect them against criminal attacks on their businesses. In economics, South Africa's Reserve Bank governor resigns and in sports news, Nigeria's Football Federation struggles to meet its obligations for the month due to lack of cash. But first up, the news with Onelen Zinzi. The death toll in the Nigerian building collapse has risen to 84. The South African High Commissioner to Nigeria, Lulunguni, says the search has been called off. He says those unaccounted for are presumed to have died. Ten South African citizens have been positively identified among the 67 who are confirmed to have been killed. Members of Lesotho's opposition Democratic Congress have vowed to attend Parliament today, despite agreeing with SADC mediator South African Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa that they will meet him on this issue on Monday when he returns. The MPs who represented the Democratic Congress at a meeting with Ramaphosa say they are committed to the mediation, but that the Pretoria Accord to open Parliament today must be respected. Deputy President Ramaphosa said he is returning to Lesotho on Monday and Tuesday after his initial assessment yesterday. He said he will engage all stakeholders to agree on the date for opening parliament, elections and security. The Opposition Democratic Congress that also met Ramaphosa says it will honor these meetings, but parliament must open today. They say they will be in parliament to see it open today. Five United Nations peacekeepers have been killed by a roadside bomb in northern Mali, wounding several others. Yesterday's attack is the latest in a string of deadly attacks on the force. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has expressed outrage at the attack and called on armed groups meeting in Algiers to take immediate action on the September 16th declaration to collaborate with the UN mission to prevent these cowardly attacks. Since the UN mission in Mali began in July last year, 21 peacekeepers have been killed by explosives device and 84 wounded. Kenyans are this week remembering victims of the Westgate Mall terror attack which happened in September last year. In Nairobi, an exhibition is opened as victims of the attack and those who lost loved ones tell of lives changed forever. Sarah Kimani has more. September 21st last year, armed attackers strike an upmarket mall in the capital Nairobi. What follows is untold horror for victims, loved ones and the East African nation. A few days to that date in the National Museums of Kenya in Nairobi, images of that day are on display. Kenyans still trying to come to terms with one of the worst terrorist attacks in the country. 
And finally, Scottish nationalist leader Alex Salmond has conceded defeat over his bid to win independence and demanded the British government rapidly meet its promise of more power in Edinburgh. Scotland has by majority decided at this stage to become an independent country. Leaders of Britain's three main parties, shocked by the strong showing of the independence campaign in recent weeks, scrambled to offer Scots more devolved power in the remained part of the United Kingdom. Kingdom. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The death toll in the Nigerian building collapse has risen to 84. The South African High Commissioner to Nigeria, Lulumguni, says the surge has been called off. He says those unaccounted for are presumed to have died. Lulumguni spoke to Sakina Kamwendo. We unfortunately would like to indicate that now the number has increased from uh, 67. The, because now the, 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 the digging and the search has come to, uh, com- nearly come to a complete uh, stop. And then the, yesterday, police were exhumed. No, day before yesterday, police were exhumed. But uh, we still had not confirmed them. But now, since this, uh, when there were still 17 uh, bodies that were outstanding from the 67, but I would like to indicate that you know, the number is to 84. Have you been able to get in touch with the church, the church leadership at all? Well, uh, we were, we are in contact with the church nearly every day. Actually, we are working very closely with them uh, in, in trying to and find also to confirm our numbers uh, because uh, the the coordinators of the various groups that came from South Africa to the synagogue uh, are members of the church. So we also work with them because they have the list and all that and they are also able to assist us. And they, in every morning we sit down with them as a group and then they are able to update us with new information that has been received. So we are working with the church, and uh, yesterday the, the prophet had requested to see me because there was a possibility of uh, a meeting with senior officials of government, but and, and unfortunately then we have rescheduled the meeting for tomorrow. So we are talking to the church, and they are responding quite well. And also, um, High Commissioner, how many people are still unaccounted for at this stage, and are there still people uh, receiving treatment in hospitals around Lagos? Yes, we do have. Uh, well, with regard to unaccounted for now, we can say that now those who were unaccounted for have, uh, are regarded as now dead because we have so uh, the 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 searches had. Actually, and the last uh, last night yesterday. So now, the people who are still in hospital are twenty nine. 
we have visited three, we had visited three hospitals on Wednesday, and we saw some of them. Uh, there were those who were partly uh, in that, uh, but the one that was most uh, uh, who had this severe uh, fractures of the face was a lady. Uh, we hope that she will be evacuated as promised by the TDC of the Disaster Management Agency. And then yesterday, we visited two more hospitals where we saw people there, but now there are two who are critically you know, uh, affected. They have a spinal uh, cord uh, 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 injuries. So now that is the, the problem. But others were able to talk to them. They are still strong. Uh, although, of course, uh, they keep asking us when they could be going home. We told them that now that we have our team on the ground, uh, it won't be long that we will be sending them home. So that is the situation. We just want our team to go and visit them today. We will accompany them to, to visit them, them in the hospital so that now they can look at them and see how uh, they can then respond uh, to them in terms of uh, evacuating them to South Africa. And then they'll communicate with our people for the plane or whatever. That's because we are planning that we want to take all of them once in one plane. We don't want to make many trips, so that's what is going to happen. Were there any children involved? Yes, there were children. There are two children, actually, coming from the same family. Unfortunately, what they, one is three who was uh, still in hospital, but uh, when I spoke to the doctor, uh, he said uh, she is ready for to be discharged. And then there's another one who is uh, who is in the care of the church of, uh, uh, people, and uh, so, but unfortunately, the the parents, the father and the mother, uh, were amongst those who were unaccounted for. So, which means that uh, they form part of those who, who have uh, uh, died. Has there been um, any official uh, communication uh, from the Nigerian uh, government uh, in terms of uh, letters of condolences or anything else, any other statements uh, in solidarity with South Africa at this point? Uh, I, I don't know. I think the, the principles of of the two countries were supposed to communicate this. And then we don't know why. Well, I don't know whether they, that did happen and uh, what, what uh, transpired in the interaction. But what I want to indicate, the, the, the government, the Nigerian government officials that interacted with us, did uh, 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 communicate with us, and uh, they did pass on their condolences. And, of course, uh, they were shocked to say that now they were not aware that so many South Africans uh, actually were, were coming to Nigeria and that so, that so many psychiatric members could die, you know, at the same time and all that. So they, 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 they are, but obviously we would want maybe a more pronounced, you know, uh, a reaction and all that. But whenever we interact with government officials, 
they do. There are reports circulating that uh, the Nigerian authorities have refused our search and rescue missions. So even though we may have presence in Nigeria, are they actually doing anything there? You know what happened? I sent a note to Baz, uh, following the one that we had sent earlier to indicate that we have our people who were affected by the incident and that we have an in- uh, interest in also complementing the efforts of the Nigerians with regard to the search and rescue. But uh, we also sent one where we were notifying the Nigerians about the coming of our team into Nigeria to help identify our people and also to see if there's still anything they can do to, 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 to complement the efforts that are being made in the search and rescue. But they, I sent that note with us. And of course, I also, together with the Consul General, we were able also to talk to to Dr. Idris, who is the Health Commissioner of the State of Lagos. He said, well, he, he, he has no problem with that, and that he will also try to assist that our teams meet with the Nigerian counterparts so that they can work together in, in as far as this is concerned. And that was South African High Commissioner in Nigeria, Louis Mguni, speaking to Sakina Kamwendo. A leading tax expert says a South African government may not have enough revenue collection for the 2015-2016 financial years. As a result of this, the country might have to sacrifice expenditure and reduce government jobs in order to have sufficient funds for the next two years. Keith Engel Africa tax policy leader at Ernst & Young was speaking to the media on the sidelines of the African tax conference currently underway in Johannesburg. Amina Akram reports. Engel believes government is under pressure to collect more revenue but don't have a growing economy to collect enough tax. He says they will have to either raise taxes in February next year or reduce government expenditure in the next two years to have enough capital. He says government will have to reprioritize its expenditure. So you don't have a growing economy. Because you don't have a growing economy, you're not going to get revenue that you need going forward. And they've been in this situation for a while, and now it's just getting more difficult. But if they take too much revenue, they hurt the economy. Now at some point, they're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to sacrifice expenditure, or are we going to start having to raise taxes? They've been slowing expenditure on getting more employment. Public service is going to slow down its hiring. On the tax side, the question is that enough? Do they need to raise taxes? Well, I think they've shown so far they prefer to raise it administratively and through enforcement rather than changing the rules. The tax expert says government is also failing to enforce secondary tax collection through levies, which is proving to be an expensive exercise. He expects an increase in earmarked levies in the coming years to subsidize for the inadequate tax collection. Toll roads, not a very popular thing. But you might find more earmarked levies of that nature. So you want a road, you've got to pay for it. You want a port, you've got to pay for it. But yes, they might find that they have to do fewer levies, or they're going to try, they probably will push harder on enforcement first. In one way or another, it'll feed through. It could be the fewer levy or otherwise. But one way or another, it will be feed through because they've got to pay for it. The problem with that is it's expensive to do that. It's better to raise a rate than to start hiding it here, there, and everywhere. And it's harder to enforce, and you have more administration. Engel also predicts that there will be no increases in corporate tax next year, but government could add value-added tax. 
He gives predictions on other expected tax changes. Will they raise personal income taxes? Well, most likely they will first not give you your full inflationary relief. So instead of raising the rates, we'll just leave the brackets and allow for bracket cream. You're paying more tax because they haven't compensated you for inflationary expense. That's the easiest way to do it. Well, they could raise the value-added tax, but the problem is they really need the money. So one thing they've discussed is value-added tax might be raised to cover the proposed national health insurance. Then the only likely source coming left is carbon tax. Will carbon tax be used as a revenue raiser rather than changing environmental behavior? The two-day African tax conference has attracted more than 300 tax experts, government representatives and business delegates across the continent. The conference aims to address challenges facing the tax regulation on the continent and managing tax risk through improved technology. The Ernst and Young tax experts also made expectations to the tax changes in the 2015 national budget. This also on the back of the upcoming medium-term budget policy statement expected next month. James Diot is African tax leader at Ernst & Young. This conference, we wanted to take it a very different direction. We really wanted to go back down to the level of what's, what is going on between industry, um, a private industry, and um, government or public. You have to get trust back on the table. And it really is about are we working together to create an economy that is going to provide job opportunities. And the greatest source of job opportunities are going to come from entrepreneurs. And that was Keith Engel, Africa Tax Policy Leader at Ernst & Young, ending that report by Amina Akram in Johannesburg. It's 8.17 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Hundreds of foreign nationals trading in South Africa's Eastern Cape province have called on the country's government to protect them against criminal attack on their businesses. The foreigners marched to the regional SAPS offices in Mtata. They say if criminal attacks are not attended to, they will stifle economic development in the country. Ngulule Konyembezi filed this report. Those who are protesting foreign nationals, including Pakistanis, Bangladesh, Somalis and Chinese, they handed over a memorandum detailing their complaints to the management of SAPS regional headquarters in Mtata. They are demanding strong policy measures such as frequent patrols, amongst others. They say more than 10 foreign nationals had been killed in the past three months, while hundreds had been injured in past two years. They say police must protect them against criminals as they are creating job opportunities for people across the province. They allege some police members are working with criminals. Pakistan Association President in South Africa, Firaz Khan, says they have reported more than 14 cases of murder and no arrests have been made by the police. More than 14 uh, cases are pending there. The culprit were not arrested and we give them many time memorandum. Uh, the High Commission reminded them to arrest these people to make sure the security and the protection of our business community here. Now today this transpired by the Chinese, Ethiopian, Indian, Bangladeshi and our Pakistani community to come out with the force and wise to be heard. And I believe it's heard. Khan says they believe in the South African justice system. He says all they need is protection and justice, whether the criminals are South Africans or foreign nationals. Uh, belief and I have faith the justice system of South Africa and the authorities and the police of South Africa. I cannot 
say anything that what went wrong. All we asking the culprit and the uh, murderer, all miscreant, are criminal, whether they are Pakistanis or South Africa, need to be apprehended and need to be brought to the justice. And justice must take its course. Mohammed Afghan from Pakistan has called on South Africans to follow on the footsteps of great leaders like the late Nelson Mandela, the late communist Chris Hani, and Thabo Mbegi. He says these leaders embrace the foreign nationals. We are missing the ideology of Tata Mandela and we are missing the ideology of Tata Chris Hani and we are missing the ideology of Tata Thabo Mbegi. My brother, they have given so much sacrifice to bring a peace in this country. But unfortunately, fighting against the crime and we are struggling in this country my brother we are helping the people of south africa my brother and will encourage each and every person to come fight against crime fight against the criminal amit ali from bangladesh says a number of foreigners have been kidnapped and killed in a brutal attacks we need our rights and we want to call the human rights to bring our rights to believe yeah and peacefully in south africa meanwhile police spokesperson mzuki sifakela has promised that all outstanding cases will be attended to there are cases that are solved there are cases that are still on our investigation we are following very good leads where we hope that we are going to arrest we have taken the 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 the, the, the petition and uh, we will look at it and they will respond to it. And also this afternoon we're having a meeting with the different communities that are here in Umtata, that, are, that, are, that were in the march, and they will take that. In, in, in any investigation, we can't have time frame, but I'm telling you, we are going to make each strike and arrest. The, the foreign nationals are optimistic that they will run their business in peace without fear of being attacked by fellow brothers. I'm Gurulegunyebezi, Tata, Eastern Cape. South Africa's police minister, Ngosnatin Klego, is expected to release crime statistics for the year 2013 to March this year, this morning. The Institute of Security Studies earlier said the police must present a clear strategy on how to deal with crime, regardless if there is a drop in any of the crime statistics. Lila Machnas reports. The previous financial year for the crime statistics was the worst year the country has seen in a number of years, if looking at crime reduction. Last year, it was revealed that the murder rate, attempted murder, sexual offences, robberies, burglaries and theft out of motor vehicles increased. It is expected that the trend will continue when the new crime statistics are released today. Gareth Newham of the Institute of Security Studies. The third time in 20 years that murder started going up last year. And similarly, we saw for the second time only in 10 years that street robberies were going up. In addition to that, ongoing increases in people being attacked in their homes, in their businesses, um, and increases in car hijacking. So those kinds of statistics or those categories of statistics are very important to watch because that reflects the numbers of armed gangs and groups of people attacking people on the streets and in their homes. And that's what drives most of the fear of crime. Last year showed that two main categories of assault decreased, namely assault to do grievous bodily harm and common assault. Newham says police are doing their best to combat contact crimes by deploying more police on patrols. However, that 
broad-based approach of mass arrest and visible policing has not reduced these kinds of crimes I've been talking about, robberies on the streets and in the homes and businesses of people. They need to then therefore focus on fixing crime intelligence. He says that although police have made breakthroughs in the fight against crime, what now needs to happen is that clear strategies must be put forward as to how the police will deal with the problem. Newham says the police must show they know how to use strategies and intelligence to get the crime statistics down. The police minister and national police commissioner will present the crime statistics at the police college in Pretoria today. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Malawi, whose economy is agro-based, has embarked on a process meant to establish other means of boosting foreign exchange earnings. This is in view of the fact that tobacco, which contributes to 70% to forex earnings, faces a bleak future. To this effect, government has for the past five years advocated for diversification of the economy and one of the priority areas is tourism. This is why Lilongwe has facilitated the establishment of Women in Tourism Network. George Mango reports from Blantyre in Malawi. For many, Malawi has the potential to develop tourism but is taking off relatively slowly. This is because the physical infrastructure, such as road access needed to cater for large numbers of tourists, is under extensive rehabilitation and construction. Nevertheless, tourism is already making a significant economic contribution to the GDP, says the World Travel and Tourism Council. Even President Peter Mutarika, currently attending the UN General Assembly, has since May 20 shown interest to promote tourism through cooperation with the international world. We are now beginning to have new friends. We have new friends in China, for example, but also we have new, new, new friends in the emerging economies. A good example is Brazil, India, the so-called BRICS countries, BRICS, which is Brazil, China, India, China, and South Africa. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, BRICS, will deal with all those countries. When I was foreign minister, the biggest investment in this country, $2 billion, came from Brazil. I am one of the leaders who signed that agreement. And therefore, we have continued relations with our non-traditional partners. These relationships are not mutually exclusive. There's room for everybody in this country. Now on the domestic front, let me tell people of Malawi that I said during the campaign, we are determined to change the direction of the economy. With the mind of capitalizing on plans by the government to promote the sector, Women have launched a tourism network meant to lobby government and the international world for the general good of the country's economy and lives. Minister of Gender and Children, Patricia Kaliati, described the initiative as a wake-up call in that various households would be safe rent 
after years of being marginalized in gaining substantial economic benefits because their involvement in economic activities has been minimal. Kaliati stated that government will lobby the banking sector locally and internationally to offer soft loans to women so they boost their businesses and later on the country's economy. Various health, economic and human rights campaigners think Malawi stands to benefit a lot from the association. Not only that, but that it would also help Lilongwe achieve Millennium Development Goal MDG3, which talks about promotion of gender equality and women empowerment. For president of the network, Lucy Saini, other organizations need to help equip women with necessary knowledge and skills for the industry to continue to flourish and produce more entrepreneurs and leaders. Government has since begun intensive efforts aimed at training skilled technical staff and artisans to sustain the growth and expansion of the economy. According to the Minister of Finance, Guru Gondwe, the economic outlook of the country also depends on proceeds from tourism and the hospitality sectors. Regardless of the economic slowdown that has characterized the past financial years, a stable macroeconomic situation that would include the availability of foreign reserves with a stable exchange rate and the low inflation and the low interest rates would prevail in Malawi. Tourism to Malawi has experienced steady growth in recent years as evidenced by increased number of visitors from 173,000 in 1995 to 637,000 in half a reason that government merits the sector to be prioritized. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Zimbabwe's black farmers are fighting to prove themselves 14 years after seizures of white-owned farms began. Close to 7 million hectares of private land was redistributed to blacks to address colonial imbalances causing food production to plummet, leaving Zimbabwe dependent on food aid. 14 years on, is the crisis over? Shinganyoka reports. We will come back to that story right after our headlines with Onelin Tinti. The search for bodies in the collapsed synagogue church of all nations in Nigeria, Lagos, has been called off. The home of Lesotho's police commissioner has been attacked yet again, this time by gunmen allegedly traveling in army vehicles. And Kenyans are this week remembering victims of the Westgate Mall terror attack, which happened in September last year. Channel Africa News. New farmer Courage Mujaranji cuts and picks roses for export to the Netherlands. Since he took over Satchel Farm, Europe's reception to his crop has been lukewarm. With time, maybe they will really actually accept without conditions, uh, saying this crop is coming from Zimbabwe. High-valued Glendale, north of Zimbabwe, used to be a horticulture and grain hub. Since the often violent land seizures, it's a shadow of its former self. Only half of the eight families resettled on Satchel Farm have had the resources to produce anything this winter. Mujaranji and his powerful military family were resettled here six years ago, receiving a lion's share of the farm, including the farmhouse and access to a dam. But it's been a hard slog. Funding mainly has been a major problem. So it's, been, it's, it's not been an easy road. 
New farmers have generally faced a hostile farming environment, both locally and abroad. They lack the structural support, loans and subsidies that helped create the previous system. The union representing dispossessed white farmers believes that productivity throughout the country is a fraction of what it was. Commercial Farmers Union President Charles Taff. Well, I think if you take the whole thing in its entirety, you're about 10%. Okay, now that's, that's across the whole commodity basket. If you're talking about success, um, removing white people, it's been a huge success. <laughs> but if you talk about it in terms of adding value to the country, it's been disastrous. Not only has agriculture shrunk to such le- low levels, but all economic activity in the country has also shrunk. The CFU wants to see large-scale production restored and farmers given proper title deeds so they can access loans. But some agrarian experts disagree. Sam Moyo is one of them. We have gone up by 30% plus the cropped area from the 1990s. Now the difference is that, of course, the large-scale commercial farmers had a greater intensity of inputs, you know, fertilizer, chemicals, use and so forth, and so their yields were higher. Much of the discussion of Zimbabwe is still in the mode of the Zimbabwe during the crisis period of, I would say, more or less like 2005, 2008. Actually, the prices of certain foods are going down, huh? that, uh, in fact, uh, farmers are beginning to gradually replace certain imports and certain crops. Uh, we're not seeing the successes. But farmers like Mujaranji still battle with negative comparisons to their predecessors. The white farmer was not here for uh, around six, around 14 years. He was here probably way before I was born. So he had that chance and uh, opportunity of growing. So I believe uh, whatever difficulties or whatever challenging that we are facing, it's only a matter of time to be optimistic about that. We will eventually get there. Glendale may no longer produce the high-value horticultural exports to Europe's premier supermarkets, but many here believe it's been the right price to pay for the thousands of families that now own a slice of the dream. I'm Shingai Nyokai in Glendale, northwest Zimbabwe. The image of Botswana as a bastion of press freedom and good governance has been dented following the arrest of an editor of a privately owned newspaper and the seizure of his computer. A tweet from a reporter in Botswana last week alerted the Committee to Protect Journalists to the arrest. Editor Auta Mukone Arrested and veteran reporter Edgar Zimani flees Botswana, says he fears for his life. The local press reported that police had arrested Sunday Standard editor Mugone when he could not account for the whereabouts of Zimani. He had written a story three weeks ago claiming that Botswana's president Ian Khama was involved in an unreported traffic accident. Although news reports said Zimani's whereabouts were not known, a financial reporter who works at a sister publication to the Sunday Standard told CPJ that Zimani had applied for and received asylum from neighboring South Africa. More from Africa Program coordinator Sue Valentine. We heard that now a week ago that the editor of the Sunday Standard, Otomokoni, was arrested when police came to the offices of the Sunday Standard in Khaboroni and wanted, said that he needed to come to the police station with him. They were inquiring about a report that the newspaper ran which said that the president had traveled unaccompanied at night and had had a traffic accident.
They stand by their story. They have uh, corroborated various sources and uh, have the information. So he was arrested for this and because his reporter, who had actually written the story, he didn't know his reporter's whereabouts. And the reporter, we subsequently found out, had fled to South Africa and had asked for asylum. And so the editor, Osama Makorni, was arrested, held for 24 hours, and then released. They also, the police also seized his computer, and that's very worrying that authorities should be presuming not only to intimidate editors and journalists, but actually also to take the, the tools of their trade and to look for possible sources and leads on the computer. So that kind of surveillance is completely unacceptable in terms of the protection, the, the, the right of the media to do their jobs and to freedom of expression and protecting journalist sources. Botswana is one of those countries on the continent that are a beacon of hope when it comes to press freedom. In light of this arrest, what does this mean for the country's press freedom? It's certainly a bad mark against its press freedom record. We understand that there is a somewhat antagonistic attitude by the Botswana government, particularly to the private media. And this is very problematic because Botswana is a democracy. As a democracy, you want to hear multiple voices. The citizens are entitled to multiple points of view from different perspectives. And a democratically elected government that has nothing to hide should have nothing to fear from the press. So it's not the kind of response that one would expect from the Botswana government and certainly not in keeping with their proud record as a stable democracy which is well governed. And and so far, has the Botswana government come out to say what is the reason for the arrest of the editor? We haven't seen any reports. I must say I'm tracking at the moment, so I hope I haven't missed something. But we know that the Botswana government reacted very angrily to a statement that came out by the United States State Department, which also condemned this arrest of the editor and seizure of his computer. And the Botswana government issued a very angry statement saying how the United States condemn it, but it provided no explanation as to why it thought that this kind of behavior would be acceptable. And how important is press freedom in a democratic state like Botswana? I think press freedom is critical in any country, and in a democracy one hopes it's protected. But it's precisely because journalism asks questions, opportunity for information to be exchanged so that citizens can be informed and can hold governments to account, inquire how money is spent, what services have been delivered. And so press freedom is central. The other thing is that press freedom is directly related to a fundamental human right, which is freedom of expression which is what makes us human. It allows us to express ourselves, to interact with the world, and that is press freedom asks questions on behalf of societies, and freedom of expression is absolutely central in all societies, and in a democracy we would expect it to be protected. What can be done to take the government of Botswana to task with regards to this particular case? We're a voice of civil society. We have issued a statement condemning this action and asking Botswana to behave according to its own principles, which it spouses. And we would hope that the media in Botswana will engage with its own government and that organizations on the ground in Botswana would be expecting their government to respect human rights. But certainly we would add our voice to that and we would 
talk about this in public spaces, but you know, Botswana citizens and Botswana media certainly are empowered to speak about these things themselves, and we would provide whatever support they would want from us. That was Sue Valentine, Africa Program Coordinator in Lusaka, Zambia, on the line to Tutongobeni. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Sudan government has retracted from the decree it made earlier this week, expelling foreign workers from the country. Now government says foreign workers can stay and work. James Shmangula reports. The decree to expel foreign workers was announced this week by South Sudan Labor Ministry. In the decree, the government indicated that it was regulating, if not prohibiting, the employment of foreign workers in the country. Those targeted by the decree included foreigners working with non-government organizations, NGOs, and private companies including banks, insurance companies, telecommunication networks, hotels, and lodges. Announcing the government's retreat from its earlier directive on foreigners working in the country, South Sudan's Foreign Affairs Ministry Barnaba Mariale Benjamin told a press conference in the capital Juba that whether they are Ugandans or Kenyans or Ethiopians or Eritreans or Egyptians or whatever, so the government of South Sudan is not expelling any foreign workers in this country. We would like this statement to be very clear. Commenting on South Sudan's labor regulations, Benjamin said. There are labor regulations that specify certain jobs for nationals. There are jobs that specify for non-nationals like in any other country. And those will be later on discussed with these companies. Operations Director at the European Union Commission's Humanitarian Aid and Protection of People, speaking in Juba, the capital of South Sudan, had this perspective of South Sudan's Ministry of Labor Decree. Pay attention to the local labor market. That is to say that what they ask is when the the expertise which is needed is available on the local market, that the employer give preference to the expertise available on the local market. So that's a matter of preference, but that would be by no means mandatory for them. Foreign Affairs Minister Barnaba Mariale Benjamin explained why the government decree will not largely now affect foreigners as it had been feared. We care for our relation because we are not in isolation. We are not in the alien territory. We are in this, in this world where we have neighbors. We interact. We do things together. We have a lot of countries in this country who are here to assist in humanitarian issues. They are assisting in, in development issues. They are supposed to stay here comfortably. That was South Sudan's Foreign Affairs Minister, Barnaba Mariale Benjamin. The government's clarification and retreat from its earlier announcement on expulsion of foreigners working in South Sudan comes at a time when the country needs international aid workers desperately. Now that more than two million people 
have abandoned their homes due to the ongoing fighting between the government troops and rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar. Trouble in Sudan occurred when the country's President Salva Kiir claimed on December 15 last year that Riek Machar and other 11 senior politicians had plotted to bring down his government. Later, the politicians were pardoned by the President and released. Now, they are part of delegations attending peace talks on South Sudan in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Thanks, Lulu. A leading South African tax expert says the government may not have enough revenue for the next financial year. As a result of this, the government may have to sacrifice expenditure and reduce government jobs to have sufficient funds for the next two years. Africa tax policy leader Ernest Young Keith Angel was speaking on the sidelines of an African tax conference in Johannesburg. So you don't have a growing economy. Because you don't have a growing economy, you're not going to get revenue that you need going forward. And they've been in this situation for a while, and now it's just getting more difficult. But if they take too much revenue, they hurt the economy. Now, at some point, they're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to sacrifice expenditure, or are we going to start having to raise taxes? They've been slowing expenditure on getting more employment. Public service is going to slow down its hiring. On the tax side, the question, is that enough? Do they need to raise taxes? Well, I think they've shown so far they prefer to raise it administratively and through enforcement rather than changing the rules. Rating agency Fitch has upgraded the credit status of South African Industrial Development Corporation to AA plus from AA following a stellar performance in a tough trading year. IDC Chief Financial Officer Hart Huys says that the corporation will take advantage of this upgrading by floating another bond later this year. This upgrade is against the trend which we've seen in South Africa recently. Fitch has spent some days at the RDC during August to go through our processes, our risk management processes and all other processes. And we were indeed very happy when they advised us yesterday that their committee decided against the trend which we've seen recently in respect of other corporates to upgrade the IDC. At a time when Zimbabwe is battling with high unemployment, making the country a vending nation, 
Authorities have begun demolishing market stall and shops which have been sprouting in the capital Harare. Over the past five years, Harare experienced an influx of foreigners from troubled nations and locals from the ruling ZANU-PF who were building shops and undesignated areas. Simon Muchemwa reports. Scores of Zimbabwean vendors are up in arms against the government following the demolition of illegal shops and market stores a few days ago. At a time when millions of Zimbabweans can hardly put a meal on their table, the Harare administration has decided to demolish illegal structures claiming anarchy. Tax shops selling basic foodstuffs and hair saloons had sprouted everywhere, including bus terminals, posing a health challenge to many. Malawi has embarked on a process meant to establish other means of boosting foreign exchange earnings. This as tobacco, which contributes to 70% to forex earnings, faces a bleak future. To this effect, government has for the past five years advocated for diversification of the economy and one of the priority areas is tourism. Malawi's economy is mainly, is mainly agro-based. George Mango reports from Blantyre in Malawi. For many, Malawi has the potential to develop tourism, but is taking off relatively slowly. This is because the physical infrastructure, such as road access needed to cater for large numbers of tourists, is under extensive rehabilitation and construction. Nevertheless, tourism is already making a significant economic contribution to the GDP, says the World Travel and Tourism Council. Even President Peter Mutarika, currently attending the UN General Assembly, has since May 20 shown interest to promote tourism through cooperation with the international world. Uganda hopes to secure an $8 billion loan from China to build a railway network to revamp the country's transport infrastructure as it prepares to start oil production. As in other areas of sub-Saharan Africa, China has become a major investor in Uganda. It has mostly channeled funds into roads, hydropower dams, fiber-optic cable networks and other infrastructure, usually offering cheap loans. Uganda, not so long ago, signed a memorandum of understanding with China Harbor Engineering Corporation to start a feasibility study on the new project. Financial indicators this hour on Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 11.3 South African rands, 899 Botswana Pula, 616 Zambian Quachas, 061 British pound, 077 to the euro. Gold one two seven seven dollars platinum one three four nine dollars an ounce. Brand crude nine seven dollars seven five cents a barrel. Stick with Channel Africa. Thank you, Tabiso. Up next, our sports updates with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Starting off with football news, South Africa has moved two places to 67th in the latest FIFA rankings released on Thursday. Bafana Bafana are now in 14th position in Africa with Algeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Tunisia, Ghana, as well as Senegal completing the top 10 on the continent. World champions Germany and unbeat and beaten World Cup finalist Argentina remain the top two sides globally. Colombia are in third position, Netherlands in, f- in third, Colombia in third position, Netherlands in fourth position, 2014 World Cup underdogs Belgium found themselves in fifth place, Brazil are in sixth, Uruguay in seventh, Spain in eighth, France in ninth place and Switzerland round up the top 10. Meanwhile, the top 10 African teams on the continent are Algeria remain the top, Cote d'Ivoire in second, Tunisia in third, the Black Stars of Ghana in fourth, Senegal in fifth position, African reigning champions Nigeria in sixth, the Cape Verde Islands in seventh place, Cameroon in eighth position, Guinea in ninth and Burkina Faso found themselves, um, found themselves at 10th position. South African national soccer women's captain Janine van Veek says there is no excuse for not performing well in the upcoming Namibia African Women's Championships, especially with the avalanche of friendly matches they have played since the arrival of head coach Vera Powell in March. Even though South Africa does not have a women's professional league running, there have been there, there has been action aplenty for the national team. The last few four months, Banyana Banyana has played eight friendlies, including one African Women's Championship qualifier against the Comoros. It's been amazing, um, all the games we play. I don't think Banyana Banyana has ever played so many friendlies in one year. And obviously thanks to Sassel for, for being behind us. You know, if it wasn't for them, none of this would happen. I mean, none of the, the games would be a live broadcast and people won't recognize us as much if it wasn't for Sassel. So um, big ups to them. And yeah, we, we're preparing for something, obviously, and we want South Africa to see that we are working hard towards what we want to achieve. And that's obviously our ultimate goal is to get to the World Cup um, in 2015. And by doing that, we need to get uh, to a position first, second or third in the eight. WC and that is our, our, our aim at the moment. So we're really happy about getting the friendlies and we, it's much needed um, in order for us to see where our standards are as a team and individually and um, going forward. Banyana have not only been winning games, but their striking powers has been impressive. Last Saturday, they hammered Botswana 10-0, and before that, they defeated Zambia and Namibia 4-0 and 2-0 respectively. Nevertheless, Van Veig predicts a tougher road ahead. Well, we're on a mission. That mission is to win. I mean, no matter what opponents you get, our aim is to win, and we need to keep that momentum. Um, obviously, we know that when we get to the AWC, it's going to be much tougher. The teams that we'll be up against will be quality teams and teams that will come out um, just as hard as we go out. On to local football news, South African Premiership side Morocco Swallows are on cloud nine after it was officially announced that Hyundai Automate Automotive Corporation South Africa will be their headline sponsor for the next two years. Morocco Solos have been without a title sponsor for nine months after Volkswagen decided not to renew their deal last year. Hyundai Operations Director Albert Grundel says he hopes the association will help to propel the club forward. Hyundai has grown exponentially over the last few years with our association with football. 
I think we're very confident that Morocco Swallows is going to be able to see the same success you know, with our partnership with them. And it's just a great opportunity for us as Hyundai's the brand to expose our products to the various people that are watching football, the football fans that support Swallows as well as just football in general with South Africa. We had obviously a lot of meetings setting up and they have uh, given us the confidence in the team that they will be a top performer in the seasons to come. Um, I know they've made some key signings, they've got a great vision you know, in our meetings and uh, as I mentioned before we're confident that the partnership will be a successful for both Hyundai as well as Morocco Swallows in the future to come. So definitely watch this space. And finally, in athletics news, one of South Africa's top female runners, Renee Kalma, will compete in the Berlin Marathon set to take place next weekend. Kalma is in her final stages of preparations for the race and has been doing well. The Berlin race will be Kalma's first marathon of the year. She says she's looking forward to it. Looking forward to Berlin Marathon. It's my first marathon for the year. My training has been going really well. So, yeah, the goal is not to put too much pressure on myself and then just um, aiming for a sub 230. And that will also be um, hopefully my, yeah, that 230 is my PB. So I hope to improve on that. Those are your sports news. Add to the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, the death toll in the Nigerian building collapse has risen to 84. Experts say South Africans may not have enough revenue collection for 2015-2016 financial year. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Nomalizo Mandela, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is We Are Growing by Margaret Singani.